Well, good morning again, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching online, we're, we're glad to have you. It's an honor to have you really, and uh, it's an incredible thing that Christians do, you know, come together like this to just sit and say, God, speak to me, and uh, I'm proud of you for taking the time. Our stage looks a little different, you might not like it, we're not real happy with it either, but uh, we're, <laughs> we're in the middle of transition. And so I just wanted to call that out, you know, like, this is supposed to be better, it's going to get better. Just want you to know that. In fact, it was kind of interesting this past week, the people who are doing a lot of this work uh, are union folks, and and, uh, so they they called one of our staff and they said, so we'll be out Friday. He said, well, hey, great, thanks for letting us know. Assuming that means they would come out on Friday. No, they meant they weren't working on Friday, they were out on Friday. And, and so the stage was just littered with all of their equipment. This aisle was full of stuff. And uh, just give it to our staff for putting that all together. Eventually, these screens are going to be a continuous unit that, that comes across the sanctuary. So, you know, I just admire these people that disconnect and reconnect things every week and uh, do it so that we can worship. Let's pray. Lord, just speak to us today. It's an important message about optimism. It's hard to be optimistic, Lord. And uh, we know that, uh, that you have every resource that we could possibly need. Uh, but we forget, Lord, uh, optimism leaks. And uh, we need to be reminded. We need to be refreshed. So speak to us in your word today, Lord, and provide a message of encouragement. This we pray in Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, it's, it's hard to be optimistic. I, I think now more than ever, we're in a 24-hour news cycle. And um, I don't care how many cable channels you have. Sometimes you won't find anything there, so you click over to a news channel. Uh, my dad used to call it the, the evening blues instead of the evening news. <laughs> but now it's 24-hour blues, you know. And I don't care what political persuasion you are. It's, it's just hard to listen to all the time. Uh, you know, we don't have objective news reporting anymore. It seems like everybody's a pundit. Everybody's trying to push or spin something in one direction or another. We probably never had objective news reporting, but we like to believe that we used to. Uh, we hear about terrorist attacks in New York. I mean, who would drive a truck into pedestrians and be proud that they've done that and kill people? Who would do that? Or worldwide? Or we, we hear about these mass shootings and we just can't imagine. Why would anybody walk into a house of worship down around San Antonio, a place that was mostly full of women and children? A lot of southern churches are like that. They call them church widows. They're not real widows. They're only widows on Sunday because their men don't go to church. And so they're in there with their kids, some old men and some women with children, and walk up and down the aisles and unleash 400 rounds into about 50 people. You know, how is that possible? And how does that affect you? I mean, how can you be optimistic when you hear things like that? Or or these Me Too scandals that are coming out now about all the sexual abuse and statistics say that about 50% of women, probably more than that, have suffered some kind of sexual abuse in their lifetime. It's seems to be part of the, the culture where men feel that they can treat women any way they want. There's constant news of inner city violence. There's the demise of the Christian church and its influence. 
statistics say that 80% of evangelical churches in America are either stagnant or in decline. Thank God it's not that way here, but it doesn't make me feel any better that other churches are losing their influence. They're growing older, they're growing smaller. And it also affects then our culture because um, the influence of the church is less powerful uh, in our day-to-day life as people uh, pay no mind to the values that the church teaches. There's political infighting, scandals, name-calling. You know, you, you would assume that our, that our elected officials would be elected to do something good for the country, to do good for the people, and, and yet it seems like they don't care about what's good. They just care about who wins and who loses. It's not about working together. It's just about winning. It's about embarrassing somebody else. There are natural disasters, hurricanes, fires, and drought. And I haven't even gotten to your life. (laughs) Hard to be optimistic in conditions like this. These are times that try men's souls. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation. The harder the conflict the more glorious the triumph. Those words were written by Thomas Paine. December 19th, 1776. December 19th, 1776. After July 4th, 1776, Declaration of Independence. But before this happened, Washington crossing the Delaware, December 24th, remember? 1776. These are times that try men's souls. Hard to be optimistic. He did stand so that the troops could see his optimism. It was, it was uh, contagious. And he wanted them to believe that even if they didn't believe, he believed. Because while the revolution had started well, it was not going so well at this point. In fact, this was December 24th, and all the conscripts, all the people who had volunteered for service were going to be released on January 1, 1777, and they were headed home. The fight was not going well. He only had 6,000 soldiers at this point. He was going to lose all of them. Congress wasn't passing money. People weren't being paid. They were threadbare. They were starving. Washington knew he had to do something. Oh, it had started well in March that year, before the Declaration of Independence. In March, they had brought cannon from some of, the, uh, some of the forts out of the wilderness area, and they'd brought them all the way to Boston, the struggle to bring that cannon. And they'd put them uh, in the middle of the night on the high ridges outside of Boston Harbor because the British were occupying the city. And uh, they woke up the next day to discover that the Patriots had placed cannon where they could destroy all the ships in the harbor. And so they struck a truce and the British had to leave. Rah, rah. Looks good for America. Let's pass that Declaration of Independence. 8,000 British and the Loyalists, the Tories, had to leave the harbor. Good riddance to you. But Washington knew that wouldn't be the end of it, and it wasn't. They sent the entire English fleet to New York, July 1776. While in Philadelphia, we were passing uh, our Declaration of Independence, the Brits were not having it. 32,000 trained warriors came on ships 
Over 100 ships filled the English, uh, filled the, the New York harbors. You couldn't believe all of them. They outnumbered the Patriots three to one. And Washington knew it was going to be a tough battle. He was working with people who were farmers. He was working with people who were merchants, not trained soldiers, no drills, just volunteers against the best fighting force with the best ammunition, the best cannons in the whole world. He stood for a while and fought. He lost 3,300 men. The Brits lost 300. And they were waiting for the next day when they would destroy Washington. It was in August. They were going to destroy the entire revolution. And on August 29th, this man of optimism, uh, George Washington said, we, we've, we've got to retreat to fight another day. And he managed to find enough boats to take his 10,000 men across the East River in the middle of darkness and then fog that God provided for the morning until they could get to the opposite bank. They ran. The British followed. They captured another 2,800 of his men. So Washington kept running until he got to Pennsylvania and they were planning to attack him there. It was winter. You know, what hope did they have of success? But Washington knew he had to do something because his troops were gonna leave him. They were gonna go home. And so he devised that he would divide his men, 6,000, into three groups of 2,000 each. And they would cross the Delaware, this ice-choked river, uh, and they would attack in the middle of the night. And so they did. Under, the, under darkness, midnight, they ferried across. 2,000 here, 2,000 here, and 2,000 here. Washington didn't know that his group was the only group that got across. The other 4,000 never made it. The river was just too treacherous. And so he takes his 2,000 men, they march for seven hours to an encampment where they knew German Lutherans would be celebrating Christmas. The Hessians, you know, who were mercenaries, who were paid professional soldiers in Trenton, waiting to attack Washington. He attacked them on Christmas Day in the morning after marching, being up all night, marching in a snowstorm for seven hours. He attacked them with only one-third of his force. Won a great battle that day. He captured um, all the Germans that were there. He lost no life, killed a couple of dozen, but he captured a thousand and all their munitions and their horses and their wagons and had another victory in just a few more days. You know, it, it, it changed the nature of the war because one man was optimistic. Where do you go to find your optimism? You know, where do you go to find hope when all hope is lost? How do you face down the enemy that, that seems impossible to defeat? How would you describe the, where you're standing on the banks of a swollen river that looks impossible to cross, and even if you cross, you still have more war to wage? Where do you have the strength after being on the defensive for so long? Where do you find the strength to go on the offensive? We're going to look at a, a true story from the Old Testament about a man named Abraham. You know, who, who was a guy like that? Who had optimism when no one else around him believed that what he believed could possibly happen. It was unreasonable. 
And yet Abraham, against all hope and hope, believed. We're going to look at Romans 4, beginning of verse 18. Against all hope. Impossible. Not going to happen. Abraham, nevertheless, in hope, believed. No reason to, except of a promise that he had received. And so he became the father of many nations, just as God had promised to him. So shall your many offsprings be, like the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. He had not yet birthed the first child. He was 100 years old. And Sarah, who was 90 years old, her womb was as good as dead. Yet he did not waver. Hope against all hope. Through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. And this is a key phrase, I think, gave glory to God. What did he give glory to God for? You know, he had some history with God and, and, and he recalled that and he gave glory to God and he was fully persuaded, not only for the past, but he was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God had promised. He'd seen God work before and he had the promise of God. So against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. It's an incredible thing to say. That promise was first made when Abraham was 75 years old. In fact, I think he was probably in his 60s when, when God came to his father, Terah. They were living down in Ur of Chaldees. They were living in a rich, fertile area uh, over in what is present-day Iran. And God said, I want to show you guys a, a country that will be for your descendants forever. They were already very successful business people. Why should they risk anything? But Terah and his three sons... Abraham and his two brothers journeyed to a place called Haran, 500 miles away, because God asked them to go. There, Terah, his father, died, and also one of his brothers, and Abraham more or less adopted his brother's son, Lot, his nephew, and he went forward to another place where God told him to go. Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis chapter 12 when God said, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. And from you, the people of the earth will be blessed. It's not like that promise was immediately answered. Optimism assumes that uh, things aren't like they ought to be yet. And Abraham and Sarah, to be honest with you, wavered. At age 80, five years later, Abraham said, out of my family, God is going to establish a great nation. Well, I don't have any children and that's not changing anytime soon. So I'm going to declare uh, my, my great servant Eleazar to be my son. I'm going to adopt him. And from him, God will do his thing. And God appeared to him again and said, Eleazar is not the guy I was talking about. No, no, it's going to be your son. And so five years later, at 85, Sarah says, I have an idea. Since I can't give you children, here's my servant Hagar. Uh, God has promised that you will have descendants and and maybe through Hagar, you can have those descendants. They'll be your children. And God came to him and said, no, it's not going to be through Hagar. It's going to be through Sarah. And the Bible tells us that Abraham fell on his face when God told him that. 
And he laughed in his own heart, not out loud. Sarah laughed out loud, but Abraham was amused by the thought. It says, will a child be born to me when I'm 100 years old and Sarah, who is 90, will she bear a child? Against all hope. Just ridiculous to believe that this could change. What impossible situation are you facing? What situation is beyond all hope for you? Is it financial? Is it occupational? Is it personal, medical? Is it relational? Are you at the end of your hope for your children? Or maybe for your aging parents? Is it physical? What unacceptable situation have you begun to make peace with? And say, I guess this is the reality. Regardless of what God promises that he can do for me, I'm beginning to doubt that it has any application, at least in my life, only in the Bible. But you see, Abraham and the Lord had history together. For 25 years, God had met his needs. In fact, he looked back and saw that God had met the needs of his father and God had met the needs of his brothers and God had met his needs too. In those 25 years while he waited, from the time that God first told him he was going to have a child until 100 years later when God came again and and said, no, it's going to be you and Sarah that will have this child, things had happened to Abraham. He had been brought to Cana, to what is now called the Holy Land in in our terminology, and uh, Lot's flocks, his nephew's flocks that he had adopted as his own son, had become so numerous and his shepherds so great and Abraham's flocks so numerous and his shepherds so great that they were fighting with each other and they couldn't coexist. There just wasn't enough land for them. And and so Abraham wisely said, we're going to have to separate Lot. Choose where you want to go. You would have thought that Lot, the younger man, would have said, well, uh, uncle, why don't don't you pick first? Why don't you go down to the fertile valleys where it'll be easier for you and, and for your sheep and for your herdsmen to live? But Lot wasn't that kind of mature guy. He says, you're giving me a choice? Well, I'm going to choose the fertile valley. And Abraham said, no, no worries. Because Abraham knew it wasn't his choice and it wasn't his work that would result in success. Abraham said, I'll live up here in the wilderness. And God still prospered him. Abraham didn't care. And, and so Lot lived down in the fertile valleys, but the fertile valley was also fought for by various kings. Five kings came and captured that land and took the kings of the valley prisoner. And along with those kings, also Lot and all of his herds and all of his servants and his family into captivity. And Abraham was living in the wilderness that nobody wanted, said, we have to do something about that. <laughs> Again, he had only shepherds. He organized his shepherds. 300 of them, so a sizable group. And he chased down these five kings and their military and he conquered them under God's hand and he brought Lot back, brought all the spoils of war back, restored the kings of the valley to their rightful place and made an offering to Melchizedek, who was priest in the area. Abraham has history with God. He knew that God had blessed him in the past and uh, he gave praise to God even though this personal request had not yet been met. What history do you have with the Lord? You know, we we have, I don't know if you do, but we have banker boxes down the basement that that have 
you know, memories and you get them out occasionally and show them to your grandkids or, or when you move, you decide whether you want to keep it or not keep it. And, uh, and we have these memory boxes and in one of them, there's this, there's this banker's book. It's a very narrow little ledger book. And I don't know if you remember Carol, but we used to, um, we lived on a pretty limited budget. My first ministry call was for $6,800, not a month for a year. That was my, that was my salary for a year. I'm that old, uh, $6,800 a year. And, And so in that banker's book, what we did was on one page, we wrote down all the things that they would take away if we didn't pay them. You know, and, and so we had our necessities there. You know, uh, our tithe was considered a necessity. You know, I, I was going to talk about, you know, putting the Lord first. So we had to practice that. Insurance was a necessity. Utilities, a car payment. I didn't have a mortgage. Um, they gave me a parsonage. I actually argued with them that you never gave it to me because when I left, you kept it. Uh, but... Uh, but, uh, you know, savings and taxes, just everything that you had to pay. And, and so in our checkbook, we only wrote down, uh, we set aside, we divide that by 12 and we set aside that amount of money uh, and we never entered that amount of money into the checkbook. So whatever we had there, $100 a week or whatever it was, that was all we had. Food was not considered a necessity. We could go without eating, you know, you know or whatever, gas or whatever. And, and we... You know, we have some history with God. You know, that served us well. Those hard times served us well. You know, we had a baby that was stillborn. You know, Carol had cancer when she was quite a young mother. I was thinking, man, am I going to raise these kids by myself? You know, we had miscarriages. And through that all, God walked with us. Now, a lot of us would like to forget hard times. But I'm saying remember the hard times. Because the hard times and how God supported you and brought you through the hard times are juice. It's energy for the optimism that you need in the good times. It keeps you centered. Abraham had history with God, but you have history with God too. And not only history with God, you have the history of Abraham. You have the history of David. You have the history of Paul. And you have the history of Jesus. You know what God can do. And uh, the other day, I was bringing our granddaughter uh, to school. I, I don't do that very often, but uh, it was a day I had off, and, and they dropped her off. And, and so I said, Cammie, I said, man, look at these trees. Just think, we couldn't even paint one tree that beautiful. And God, in a matter of a week or two, has done it across the world. That's our God. You know, our, do you see that? Does, that? does that gratitude give you optimism to say, that's my God. If he can do that, the small little things that I face, what are they? They are nothing compared to that. And, and I know he not only has power and ability, he also has great love. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, for me. It's not a small thing. You know, if he loves me like that, and he has great resources to bring to bear in my life, Why should I doubt him? I have history to call on. God's divine history, the history of my family, the history of my parents who were dirt poor. Dad's factory moved away before retirement and he took security jobs. I don't know how he's gonna live, but they lived just fine until the end of their life. God provided. Just pay attention to how God has provided. You have history with God. Optimism 
assumes you are unwilling to make peace with the status quo. You are just unwilling to, to stay on that side of the river and not cross because you're optimistic that things can get better. I don't know if you saw the article in Faith Matters um, that I wrote about you know, my 30 years of, of work uh, in this place. But I, I looked back on that and uh, I'm actually amazed that, that God uh, you know, did so much with so little. And, uh, and in the course of that article, I, I gave thanks to God, give thanks to certainly my family, but, but also to the lay leaders, to the incredible staff, and mostly to the people that tolerated my ministry for so long that, that led us to the place where we are today. It truly is, it's very humbling to look back and yet I got an email, and this is from a good friend and, uh, uh, who took upset, exception with my article. And, uh, uh, you know, and he truly meant his email as a compliment, and I took it that way, and I thanked him for it. And so I don't want you to think I'm being critical, but it's uh, a different perspective, his versus mine, because he saw what was accomplished under my leadership, but I saw what was accomplished in my weakness by the strength of God. And, and so that gives you a different perspective. If he thinks out of your human strength, you accomplish things, I realize that out of my inability, God accomplished things. And it changes the way you look at stuff. It gives you greater optimism. If you think it's all on you, you know, that's a scary thought. But when you think it's on God, then there's, there's nothing to be fearful of, is there? He wrote me, he says, my only thought regarding your work at St. John's is that it always gets billed as the work of God. God is doing great things here, etc. but I don't buy that it was because of God. If you and Dion were not on the scene moving and shaking things, nothing would be happening. God does not do what a man should be doing. He may inspire, solve a problem now and then, or just have a solution pop into your mind. But without your physical presence, your drive, your inspiration, your prodding, nothing would be happening. This place is what it is because of a focus on what needed to be done, period. Don't minimize your accomplishment. You were an effective leader. And I know he meant that as a compliment, but as I look back, I was, I was afraid most of the time and uh, was surrounded by some great people. And, and, uh, and yet I had a resolve that I was unwilling to accept or make peace with the status quo. I think it was my dysfunction, not my ability, that God used to show his power. Because when I came, St. John was good. Church was full, it was a small church, but it was full. Bills were being paid. And, uh, but, but see, I, I don't know, from somewhere God gave me this discontent that being good is not the mission of the church. Paying your bills is not the mission of the church. Having the people like their pastor and the pastor like their people is not the mission of the church. I used to say that the mission of the church is to reach lost people. The church is not the mission. The mission is to reach lost people and to strengthen save people to reach lost people. It's always about lost people. And, and, and so... Uh, <laughs> You know, we pushed in and pushed hard uh, against, you know, the status quo. Ships in the harbor are safe. 
But that's not what ships are meant to do. You know, ships are meant to go out on the sea. They're meant to accomplish something. Churches who take care of themselves are safe, but that's not what churches are meant to be. They're meant to accomplish things. And I saw it was my job to aggravate folks so that we would do that. And I said it was my dysfunction because, see, I was raised, my birth family, it's kind of an interesting birth family, and, and uh, it's scary to think that you're in for more of this because Dion has a very similar experience. <laughs> and I'm just warning you uh, in advance, you're going to run now, you know, don't cross the Delaware. Uh, because uh, I was raised in a family of seven kids, but my dad worked third trick. My dad was blue collar. He worked for International Harvester. And so we're at three to 11s. Never saw my dad. You know, on weekends, uh, he was uh, either down at the uptown pub with his buddies from the war, or he was golfing or he was gone. Uh, And of course, three to 11, the hours that he was working, uh, when I got up in the morning to go to school, he was sleeping. And when I got home, he was at work. So, you know, mom raised seven kids pretty much by herself. And uh, I used to think that was... That was unfortunate. I didn't get a lot of nurture. But, you know, it made me kind of an independent guy who didn't need a lot of nurture. So I didn't need the congregation giving me attaboys. You know, I'd never had attaboys in my life. And, and that's not to my credit. That's just the way I was raised. But God used that to accomplish something. It was also the Vietnam War era when everybody was raging against the machine, you know, not, uh, not giving proper honor to institutions of, of power. And so uh, it didn't bother me to go against the grain a little bit, you know, because that was the attitude, that was the generation that I was raised in, you know, to rage against authority. And, and so if the church council didn't like what I was doing, it's all right, that's why I'm here. It's job security, you know, to challenge the authority. And there was a battle for the Bible going on too in my own denomination. You know, those who believed in kind of a liberal view of scripture and those who did not. And I saw that and I said, you know, I'm never going to be involved in that. And I haven't been and didn't drag my church into that either. I just said, you know, people matter. We're going to love people. We're going to manage the scripture faithfully as best we can. But we're going to be about this church. We're not going to get drawn into other battles. I see so many churches get drawn into and get off track and get off mission. But all of that was not of my doing. That was how God had shaped me. So it wasn't because of my strength. It was because of how God had brought me that things got accomplished. But I was certainly unwilling to make peace with the status quo. And I'm sorry if you like the status quo, but I don't think you got a guy who's going to do that now either. <laughs> Optimism also assumes resources beyond your own ability. Abraham said, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God had promised. He was fully persuaded that God could do what God had promised. This past week, I'm, I'm in a men's study, and I, uh, we meet every week, and we've been meeting, man, for over 20 years, and different people come and go, but uh, right now there's about six guys in my group, and there may be only two of us because we travel, or there may be six guys there. Usually when I pay the bill, it's six guys that are there. I don't know. God's still messing with me. I should wait and declare after I see how many come. Uh, but optimism assumes resources beyond your own ability. Uh, this past week in my men's group, we were studying Mark chapter 11. We just grab a book of the Bible and we read it. We do a lot of other support and encouragement and prayer. But we read this passage, truly I tell you, 
If anyone says Jesus' words, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Really? You can just say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea. And if I believe that, it would be done for me? How can that be? And, and I think it's a hyperbole. I think what Jesus was saying is that the problem isn't that you ask too much of God. The problem is that you don't ask enough of God. Most of us and most churches and most people do what seems reasonable. Rarely set their goals on what seems unreasonable. Count on their own resources, not on the resources that God has to make miracles happen. And the Lord's saying we could use more of that in the world. And you could use more of that in your life. You see, when, a, when Washington stood on the banks of that, that ice-choked river, he actually believed that God wanted something done. And he had seen how God had blessed him in his own personal life. And he had seen uh, how God had blessed this nation, even despite the difficulty of the present situation. And he would not accept English rule as most were willing to accept. You see, he didn't just believe that the Declaration of Independence was, was just a document that would be put under glass in the Smithsonian someday. He believed that it was true. That we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable, undeniable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted. Would to God we should read this again in Congress. Deriving their powers from the consent of the governed, not our bosses, our servants. And when any form of government becomes destructive of those things, the people have the right to alter and to abolish it and to institute a new government. He believed that. He believed that God was with him and that God would bless this. And so he had an optimism that said, in fact, he passed the phrase as they went into battle that would be on the lips of all 6,000 men, only 2,000 crossed, but on the lips of the men would be victory or death, victory or death. We're not settling. We're not gonna accept the status quo. People of faith stand in the shadow of the cross. People of faith trust the promises of God that he has made in the Bible. They are not just to be studied. They are to be believed. They are to be lived. People of faith remember what God has done in history. They, they reflect on what God has done in their life and in the lives of those they know. People of faith believe they have a purpose beyond themselves, for goodness sakes. We're meant to do noble things, to accomplish great things, you know, and to look back on it and say, didn't God do an awesome thing? People of faith believe that God can do anything. And more than that, people of faith believe that God can do anything through them. And people of faith always expect God's help. So I ask again, you know, what impossible situation are you facing? What situation has tested your faith to its limit? 
what unacceptable situation are you beginning to make peace with? Because you've lost your optimism. You've lost your belief that God can do anything and that God can do anything through you. These are times that try men's souls. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. But we have this consolation. The harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Amen. Lord, we thank you for what has been done. And I have before me, Lord, by the end of the day, several thousand people that you've equipped and you've placed in perfect position to do impossible things that will require a degree of optimism and a degree of faith that surpasses what is reasonable. But that's the definition of faith. Lord, help us to look to the cross and to look to you in history and you in our life and know that there is nothing that is impossible for you. And to believe, Lord, that you will, uh, you will accomplish in us things that other people will see and say, it must have been God because I know those folks. They couldn't do that on their own. Lord, grant it in Jesus' name. Amen.